come save the kingdom of Daventry not once, not twice, but eight times with King's Quest. This week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome yet again to episode number 23 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Joe. We're only a week late. Uh, I apologize right off the bat for uh, for the little delay, but things have been a little bit crazy the past couple of weeks. Um, I know last time uh, around I put out the Roller Coaster Tycoon show, and since then I, uh, I went on vacation skiing in BC for a week, which was incredible, amazing snow, amazing vertical, and it was really fun recklessly throwing myself down the side of a very, very tall mountain, even though when I say it that way, it sounds really stupid. But anyways, uh, I had a lot of fun, and uh, I got home just in time to uh, to do a release at, uh, at my day job, so we, there was a lot of work there, and I thought maybe I'd be able to get the show out during the week. But, uh, you know, chasing down bugs and and handling all that stuff that comes with a a major software release uh, kind of got in the way. So, unfortunately, we're a little late, but it's only one week, and I got a big, 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 probably one of the biggest shows we've had uh, thus far. So, uh, I guess we should probably get right to it and stop complaining about the fact that, uh, that I'm late. So there is a little bit of news this week. I'm not going to spend too much time on it because we have got a lot to talk about, but just a couple of little items. Uh, So if you guys remember, I talked about uh, Ken Allen's Under the Half Dome project, his uh, his audio project where he's going to be putting out a CD of, uh, I guess initially it was he was saying his music inspired by uh, by his old video game music that he did while he worked at Sierra and and for other companies. Well, a couple of weeks back, uh, he's been putting out uh, a couple of podcast episodes and a couple of weeks back, he put out a very interesting one uh, where he talks about how he came up with the music that uh, he put in Space Quest Four, which was kind of the, one of the, the first Space Quest project he worked on. I'm not sure if it was the first project he worked on at Sierra, but it was definitely the first Space Quest he worked on, and he was uh, kind of the lead, uh, the lead composer on that project. So like I said, he talks about, you know, the process he went through and the thought he went through and how he went about kind of coming up with the music and how he came up with the theming and all that stuff. So that podcast is available on SoundCloud. It's uh, on his account, Ken Allen 10, and it's a Kickstarter podcast from 129. So it's uh, from January 29th. So it's quite a while ago, but uh, it's a very interesting podcast. So check it out. I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, another point in Ken Allen news is, like I said, initially his project is uh, it was to do music inspired by his original show or his original music from the video games that he's worked on, because he was under the impression that because uh, Activision Blizzard, I guess what is what we call it now, uh, owns all the rights to Space Quest and and all that stuff, which is why uh, the two guys from Andromeda are not doing an actual Space Quest because they couldn't get the rights away from Activision. Um, Ken Allen was kind of under the impression that he also could not reproduce or rearrange the original music that uh, that he created. Well, he's found out from, I guess, some uh, some fans of his that are more uh, versed in copyright law that as long as he pays what's known as a mechanical license to Activision, he is allowed to rearrange 
the music from uh, from from the games. Now, the, the reason he'd be doing this is because technically by rearranging them, he would be making a cover, pretty much. So he is allowed to do that. So that's incredible. So the, the big news for this is that we're not going to be listening to, you know, music inspired by Colonel's Bequest, music inspired by K- Space Quest, music inspired by King's Quest. It's going to be rearrangements of the actual music. So that is going to be really incredible and really amazing. And I am looking forward to this CD even more now. Finally, in the news, a big announcement from GOG.com, a long-awaited game in, uh, from, from most of our points of view, I think, is now available, and that game is System Shock 2. So System Shock 2, now available on GOG.com. believe that game, System Shock 2, I believe, is from 1998 or 1999, and uh, not a game that, uh, that I played personally. I remember hearing a lot about it, and it's definitely one I'm going to check out because I remember it being hailed as a very good game. Uh, 999 GOG.com System Shock 2. Go and check it out, and uh, that'll do for the news for this week. So let's get on to emails a little bit before we uh, we start talking about the main topic. We've got quite a few emails this week. Right now, I'll cover the ones that are not related to King's Quest. Uh, firstly, Andreas has sent in a follow-up on the last show covering Roller Coaster Tycoon. He writes, Hi Joe, I'm glad Joss mentioned it in his email because you forgot to mention one of the most important parts of RCT, namely brutally murdering your guests. There was nothing quite as satisfying as launching a roller coaster full speed off a ramp and into a solid wall. Another thing I like to do is take one square of path, put barbed wire fences around it, place it at the exit of my most popular ride, and sit back in my turning chair, petting my white cat as more and more people got stuck in a tiny space with vomit piling up on the floor. My mother was so proud. I only got into the first game myself, and actually I kind of made my own sandbox. When I first started it up, I thought I was just picking an area to build and wasn't even aware of the scenarios. I picked a desert map and just kept building my park long after the scenario was finished. I tried once or twice to start a second scenario, but I just found myself coming back to my self-made sandbox over and over. When I tried RCT 2 and 3, Uh, Pretty much the same thing happened. I missed my desert sandbox and gave up quite early. Shocking as it might be to you, I've never played King's Quest. In fact, the only adventure games I've played of that era are Police Quest 2 and Atlantis. I'll be taking a backseat on this one. If you ever get to the FPS games based on Ken Silverman's build engine, though, you're going to be getting a huge email from me. Well, thanks, Andreas. Um, You know, it's true. I don't always mention everything uh, everything about, uh, about these games. Uh, sometimes I, I just don't come across them and, uh, maybe I'm a bit boring, but you know, in games like Roller Coaster Tycoon and Sim City and things like that, even the Sims later on, I don't know if it's my personality or maybe because I'm boring or whatever, but I was never really into like torturing my people. Uh, like in the Sims, I would never, uh, lock someone out of the bathroom or, uh, you know, I always hated when disasters hit my cities in SimCity. I guess I was really into the building aspect of things and making it as efficient and awesome as possible. And I definitely see the appeal of you know, killing people and making mayhem and whatever, because, hey, it's a game. Let's screw around. Let's have fun. But, uh, you know, it just wasn't really something I ever did a ton. I, eh, like I said, maybe I'm dull. Maybe I'm boring. But, uh, you know, I, I'm also glad that uh, that Josh mentioned that aspect of the game as well. And that's why I love it when you guys write in because you tell me things that uh, either I don't think of or I don't remember, or frankly, I just run out of time to talk about because there's so much to say about these games that sometimes uh, I, I, I just run out of time. 
Uh, if I remember correctly, I think I actually did check this with you afterwards in a follow-up email, but Ken Silverman's build engine, I believe, is, uh, is the engine behind Duke Nukem 3D and Redneck Rampage and things like that. We are definitely, most definitely, going to talk about uh, the Duke Nukem series for sure. And I did also play Redneck Rampage, and uh, I think that's in the time frame of the show, so we may talk about stuff like that as well. So I am expecting a very good email from you when, uh, when I get there. Thank you, Andreas. Uh, next, we have a voicemail from Mike. So here we go. Mike, take it away. Hey, Joe, this is Mike from Los Angeles. Wanted to drop you a quick note to let you know how much I enjoy listening to your podcast every other week. It's, uh, you know, it's pretty amazing. You seem to have really tapped into the zeitgeist with your show. What, and what I mean by that is that um, I feel like every time I listen to your show, you're covering some series from the past, and then it seems like just a week later, there's a Kickstarter campaign that is attempting to revive that particular series that you've been covering. So uh, kudos to you for your uncanny timing. Uh, the question I have for you has nothing to do with the King's Quest series, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You know, I've uh, listening to your podcasts, um, I'm taken back to all the fun that I had playing games like Red Baron and uh, the Wing Commander series and Lucasfilm's Battle of Britain, which is a very cool game if you ever want to cover that one. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But um, one thing that I do remember spending quite a bit of time trying to figure out was the best way to play these games, whether it's using the keyboard, whether it's using the mouse, whether it's buying a joystick. Um, I remember having a CH flight stick that I was quite fond of, and I also remember uh, having quite a bit of, uh, quite a number of very subpar peripherals that I used. Um, so I would love to hear your thoughts on, well, when you're playing these games, which peripherals you recommend using, and whether they actually work with DOSBox. Um, I'm not sure how that all works, or if you have to kind of uh, just settle for the keyboard in, in many of these situations. So once again, I love the show. Keep on doing what you're doing, and uh, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, thank you, Mike. Um, I guess in response to that, yeah, you know, I, I, I do try when, uh, when, when, it's, uh, when it's necessary to talk a bit about uh, peripherals used to play, to play these games. Uh, you know, back in the day, I had a, I, I also had a wide array of, uh, of peripherals. I, I, I know you posted on the Facebook group a picture of that CH Flight Stick Pro, and I could not for the life of me remember the name of it, but I had the exact same one. It was kind of the, uh, the beige box with black stick and red buttons on it. Uh, I remember that being an amazing joystick, and I'm not, I don't feel like that was the last joystick I had. I remember having a Gravis Advanced joystick, which to me, actually, now that I think about it, is much less effective than that CH flight stick was. I'm not sure if the flight stick stopped working for some reason, but uh, the Gravis Advanced, I think, is the last one that I owned. And before that, I owned quite a few more, uh, you know, maybe cheaper, maybe more expensive joysticks. I remember one of them, uh, I was playing, uh, I think it was Big Red Racing or something, a driving game, which might even be from Blizzard. And uh, I was pressing forward on this older joystick that I had, and uh, the stick just snapped. It did kind of, fell, it, it fell over limply with uh, with a wire hanging out of it. And uh, yeah, that was probably my worst experience with a joystick. I remember, you know, my dad's old Apple II, we had one of these little tiny joysticks that you could only hold with two fingers. And I had a Gravis, a Gravis gamepad and all these, you know, plugged in through the uh, through the, the MIDI port on my sound card and all that. And uh, yeah, you know, I'll definitely, uh, if I haven't been, I'll definitely uh, remember that when I come across certain games, you know, most games, 
where if it's just keyboard or just mouse and you don't really have the option to, to use other things, I don't really bother mentioning it, but I know for flight sims, I always liked a joystick. I think I even had a, uh, a steering wheel. My brother got it for me for Christmas one year. I had a, a USB steering wheel to play some driving games. That was a little later on. And I always wished for the life of me, I always wished that for flight sims, I would I would have been able to afford that whole kind of thrust master package with the rudder pedals and the throttles and the yoke and all that stuff, but it was just too expensive. And, uh, you know, even after I got my pilot's license when I was, uh, when I was 18 years old, I always thought it would have been really cool to have that set of controls, but, uh, yeah, just the multi hundreds of dollars and maybe even thousand dollars that it costs was just way out there, but thanks so much for that. And, uh, you know, we're definitely going to cover some flight sims, some more flight sims later on. I know LucasArts had a whole bunch, Battle of Britain and Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe, and then there's even other ones like Falcon 2.0, and and there was a, an F-18 Hornet one that I used to play, and F-117A Stealth Fighter from Microprose. There's, there's a whole ton of those, and uh, I'll definitely get back on the on the flight sim bandwagon at one point in time. So one more little voicemail. Mike sent a, a quick little uh, a, a quick PS to that first message. So let's listen to that right now. Oh, and Joe, one more thing uh, with the new Star Trek Into Darkness film coming out in May. I think it's high time that you release your Star Trek 25th Anniversary and Judgment Rights reviews as a proper Upper Memory Block podcast show. Uh, those reviews were fantastic, and I'm dying to play those games. I never actually played them back in the day, and um, I'm trying to figure out how to do so now. So uh, just wanted to uh, put that out there. Hope you can release those soon. Yeah, so, you know, I've been kind of toying with this idea. I don't know if everyone's aware. I posted on the blog way back when it happened, but uh, months ago now, I did a a guest podcast for Treks in Sci-Fi where I covered Star Trek 25th Anniversary and Star Trek Judgment Rights, the two interplay Star Trek games from uh, from the early 90s. And, um, you know, it wasn't an official Upper Memory Block podcast. I focused a bit more on the Star Trek-ness and the story and a little, little bit less on the technology. So... So, you know, you guys, let me know. I've been toying with the idea of maybe just taking that episode and dropping it on the feed as kind of a bonus show, or do you guys think that I should do maybe just an official podcast kind of covering it? I know a lot of the research is already done, so it wouldn't be that difficult for me to do. Uh, And, you know, maybe focus a bit more on the tech and a little bit less on the story and all that. Or, uh, yeah, you know, like I said, podcast.umbcast.com. Let me know what you guys think. It'd be very easy for me. And I don't think Rico from Trex and Sci-Fi would have a huge problem with me dropping that older show into my feed. And uh, yeah, let me know. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for So this is probably one of the most ambitious podcasts I've ever tried to put together. I'm going to try and talk about eight games in this show. Uh, I know I kind of talked about a few more in uh, the Command and Conquer episode, but uh, I'm going to try and talk about eight games in some amount of detail. Format-wise, we're going to do this similarly to the way I did Space Quest. Instead of splitting the show into the big sections, we'll do it all in kind of a mixed-up dev story, tech-focus, pseudo-style. But first things first, a little bit of general info about the series. So King's Quest, the series I'm talking about this week, is a series of eight adventure games developed and published by Sierra Online. The first game in the series, King's Quest, Quest for the Crown, was released way back in 1984. 
So we always talk about genre, so let's do it. We'll talk about it very quickly. This is a Sierra adventure game. We've already discussed Space Quest. We've already discussed Gabriel Knight. On a slightly less related note, we've talked about LucasArts Adventures and all that. So King's Quest came before both Space Quest and Gabriel Knight and uh, effectively set the standard baseline on which those later games would draw. Uh, the King's Quest games were generally the first to leverage new engines, technologies, and gameplay ideas, so all games that came after them, uh, at least from Sierra, tended to inherit the ideas that were introduced in King's Quest. So on to the first game in our series, 1984's King's Quest, Quest for the Crown. So in this original game, we are introduced to quite a few story elements that will become hallmarks throughout the series. Uh, the vast majority of the game's backstory, as usual for games of this time, exists in the manual. Uh, we find ourselves in the magical kingdom of Daventry. Daventry's history is marked by years and years of peace, safety, riches, and prosperity. This was due to three magical items belonging to the royal family, currently headed by King Edward the Benevolent. Uh, these three treasures are a mirror that tells the future, a shield that protects against danger, and a magical chest that is always filled with gold. Despite all of this, happiness and prosperity and wonderfulness, King Edward was getting on in age and he had no heir to which to pass the throne to. He and the queen tried and tried, but to no avail, no heir would be produced. One day, when the king and queen were resigned to never having a child, a sorcerer appeared, saying he would help the queen bear a royal heir. All he asked for in return was the mirror that told the future. The king and queen looked in the mirror and saw the image of a young man being crowned king. This was obviously a good sign. This young man must be their son. They have to agree. They gave away the mirror. Well, the queen did not become pregnant. The sorcerer had lied. Now, without the mirror to tell of good and bad weather, the crops that year failed and the people of Daventry began to go hungry. Years later, in a much less happy kingdom, the queen suddenly fell ill. After the royal physicians failed to help, a dwarf appeared, saying he had a magical root that could save the queen's life. All he asked was the shield that protects the wearer against danger. In desperation, the king agreed. Alas, the queen took the root, fared worse, and died. By this time, the dwarf was gone with the shield. As a result, the kingdom became embroiled in wars and began to suffer defeats without the protection of the magic shield in battle. Finally, sometime later, the king realized he needed to take a new wife, being that the queen had died. One day, on an adventure, he rescued the beautiful Princess Dahlia of the land of Cumberland. They quickly fell in love and were to be married. On their wedding night, Dahlia revealed her true self. She was actually an evil witch and made off with the one remaining treasure of Daventry, the chest that is always filled with gold. So, now with no way to foresee the future, no protection, and no money, the kingdom begins to fall into ruin. King Edward calls his bravest knight, Sir Graham. Graham's task is to track down and reclaim the three lost treasures. His reward? Since King Edward has no heir, Graham would become king after him if he succeeds. If he does not, it would mean the end of Daventry. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block 
So, you are obviously cast as Sir Graham. Gameplay-wise, King's Quest 1 is the original Sierra AGI adventure game. In fact, the code for this game became Sierra's Adventure Game Interpreter Codebase. Gameplay is executed completely via keyboard. You move Graham around the world using the arrow keys and make him interact with objects via a text parser. So, as in the first two Space Quest games, if you want to open a door, you type open door. If you see a rock and you want to move it, you type move rock. Suffice it to say, Sierra AGI games taught me how to type quickly and spell accurately. This game doesn't pause for you to type, so if a monster is coming at you and you need to perform an action like draw a sword or something, you have to type it really fast. Being that these early adventures were the next kind of incremental evolution up from pure text-based adventures, the interactions were quite similar. Despite having visual imagery to look at, typing look room would still give you a very detailed text adventure style description of your surroundings. Instead of typing go north to move north like you would in a text adventure, uh, you know, you would move your character up the screen using the arrow keys. So therein lies the main difference in interface. So with this interface in mind, we find ourselves standing in a field outside Castle Daventry. Graham must explore the world, solving puzzles in an attempt to locate and retrieve the treasures. On his quest, you'll notice that most of the situation he finds himself in are inspired or directly pulled from fairy tales, mythology, and literature. For example, the magic chest is kept by a giant at the top of a beanstalk. An elf provides you with a magic invisibility ring. Uh, Graham must defeat a dragon and shove a witch who lives in a candy house in her own oven. Knowledge of the specific stories that Graham's current situation is based on definitely provides clues as to how to solve the puzzles. Of course, being that this is an unforgiving Sierra adventure game, there are many, many ways for Graham to die. Even on the first screen of the game, you can fall into the moat and get eaten by crocodiles. Most enemies you encounter can easily kill you. There are ledges and stairways to fall from. So as usual in every game I am going to talk about, save early and save often. Uh, if you do manage to navigate the world and recover the artifacts successfully, you get your reward. As you approach the king, he congratulates you and immediately dies, leaving you as King Graham of Daventry. So let's talk a little bit about graphics and sound. Uh, King's Quest, Quest for the Crown, released in a few versions. I will talk here about the official 1984 PC release. Like the original Space Quest, which released two years later, King's Quest 1 sported 160 by 200 EGA graphics capable of a stunning 16 colors. CGA 4 color was also supported for older machines. So instead of using stored bitmap images like more modern games would, Sierra AGI Adventures used vector-based graphics. So instead of loading graphic resources like images, backgrounds, and textures, all graphics were stored as a series of draw commands. When a specific screen was to be loaded, the draw routine would execute, drawing each line of the scene onto the monitor and filling areas with color. While this method does make for somewhat crude graphics, especially in this very kind of early revision of it, it minimizes the size of the game, enabling it to run directly from low-density floppy disks. Uh, from a down-and-dirty check of my GOG downloaded version of King's Quest 1, the game is about 400 kilobytes. That is not megabytes, that is not gigabytes, that is kilobytes. That is very small for an entire video game. Sound and music, as you heard a little bit before, were output via the PC speaker. The PC speaker was notoriously difficult to use to output music. Uh, technically, it only output what is known as a sawtooth wave. Now, this means that it could really only make two tones of beep, a low and a high. 
However, you could kind of hack the PC speaker to output levels between these two official output levels. If you carefully timed a short pulse, which went from one level to another and then back to the first, uh, the speaker would output sound that was somewhere in between the low and the high levels. Doing this turned the PC speaker into a very crude digital audio controller, which uh, then allowed game developers to add very crude music and sound effects to their games. Now, the music you heard earlier in this section was taken off of a Tandy, which unlike IBM PCs at the time, actually did have a dedicated sound chip that could handle up to three simultaneous voices. So it sounds a touch better than the original, uh, the original PC music. There's a nice little underlying you know, melodic line and all that. So it could play three sounds at the same time. The PC speaker could only play one. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, so time for King's Quest 1's dev story. I'm going to spend most of the dev story time here because obviously this is where the beginnings of everything are. And as I go through the other games, I will uh, I will fill in cool facts and all that stuff. But uh, the dev story of King's Quest is tied directly to the fortunes of the company that made it, Sierra Online, and the people that founded that company, Ken and Roberta Williams. Roberta, born in 1953, and Ken, born in 1954, met and were married at 18 and 19 years old, respectively, in 1973. They soon, that same year, had their first son, DJ. Uh, Living in LA, even in the early 70s, was a very expensive proposition. With Roberta staying home to care for DJ, Ken, a programmer by trade, had to work a regular full-time programming job in addition to up to three freelancing jobs at once just to stay afloat. Uh, They did, but just barely. Now, unlike most women of the time, Roberta had previously been a computer operator and uh, also had some programming experience herself. Now, because of this, she was able to assist Ken with some of his freelancing work while staying home with the baby. So Roberta found herself in the odd situation of becoming a fairly experienced computer programmer in the 1970s out of economic necessity, as opposed to a love for computers, which almost everyone else that I've talked about on this show thus far, you know, that's the situation they've been in. Uh, There was work to do, and there was a family to feed, so she and her husband Ken buckled down and did the work that needed to be done. This arrangement went on until about 1979, when Ken left his full-time gig to start his own private consulting firm, which he named Online Systems. While creating a tax program using an IBM mainframe he had access to, he came across a little game called Colossal Cave Adventure while rummaging through some floppy disks. Uh, It had come out a few years earlier in 1976. Colossal Cave Adventure was a text adventure game. He decided to lug a terminal home and give it a go with Roberta, as she loved a good story. Uh, The couple played the game and loved it. Roberta immediately went out in search of more adventures of the same caliber. Sadly, the selection was quite lacking. So, of course, she did what many creative people do. She decided to create her own. Roberta was a big fan of fairy tales and other classic stories. Her first game idea ended up being an Agatha Christie-style mystery adventure known as Mystery House. Locked in an old Victorian house with seven other characters, one person at a time ends up being killed until you figure out who the murderer is. While Roberta conjured up her story, Ken was being introduced to a new innovation, the Apple II. Uh, Initially, he dismissed the little plastic box as a toy. It wasn't a real computer. Real computers took up entire rooms. Eventually, though, he and five other programmers developed a Fortran compiler for it, and they started working on the Apple II. Roberta saw potential in the platform as well and urged Ken to help her put her game on it. 
Roberta felt, though, that her game would be better served if it had some imagery along with the text. Ken agreed, and they purchased what was known as a Versa Writer. A Versa Writer was a device that could translate paper sketches into simple computer-generated imagery. After developing a drawing program to leverage the Versa Writer, Ken and Roberta got to work. Each Mystery House screen showed a rudimentary white line graphic on a black background. While it was very basic, the items and objects could easily be identified and a new genre was born. Mystery House would be the first adventure game to incorporate graphics. Mystery House quickly became a huge hit, selling for $24.95 with a floppy disk, a manual, all stored in a Ziploc bag. Mystery House became the first in online systems new series of high-res adventures. For her next game, Roberta decided to go the fantasy route. She created an entire fantasy world named Serenia and developed the story of the Wizard and the Princess. Technologically, Wizard and the Princess was the same as Mystery House except for one thing. This game was in color. The Apple II could display six colors, but via visual tricks like dithering, they were able to make very a very rich and colorful game. Where Mystery House had sold an amazing 10,000 copies, that was unheard of, The Wizard and the Princess sold 60,000 copies. Roberta was inspired by the fantasy world she had created and was ready to do something much more ambitious with it. So as the company became more popular, Ken and Roberta soon realized that uh, another company already existed named Online Systems. Well, this was kind of a problem because they wanted to incorporate. uh, They needed a new name. Since the company was based in Oakhurst, California, at the base of the Sierra Nevada Mountains, they decided on the name Sierra Online. Sierra continued developing and releasing new high-res adventure games through the next few years, including Ulysses and the Golden Fleece, Time Zone, and The Dark Crystal, a game based on the Jim Henson movie. Finally, in 1983, IBM was developing a new computer for educational and home use called the PC Junior. It would sport a 4.77 MHz CPU, 128K of memory, and a 16-color video card. Knowing that Sierra was quite popular in the gaming space, they approached Ken and Roberta and asked them to create a game to show off the PC Junior's capabilities. Of course, Roberta accepted the challenge. This new game would be based on her previous effort, The Wizard and the Princess. It would be based in the same general world, with the same general ideas, still based in myth and fairy tales, but it would be much, much grander. Instead of a series of vaguely related screens that you looked at from a first-person perspective, Roberta designed the world of Daventry on an 8x6 grid of outdoor screens, with each logically flowing into the screens around it. Additionally, there would be over 30 additional screens depicting indoor environments. Puzzles were to be made more complex and more visual than ever before. This game was going to be big. Of course, the existing high-res adventure code wasn't up to this task, In an era where most computer games were written by one or two people in a few weeks, King's Quest employed a staff of six full-time programmers and took 18 months to complete. This was a huge project and a huge risk for Sierra. By 1984, King's Quest was ready to hit the market and revolutionize the gaming industry. It was an incredible feat of engineering and storytelling for the time and was destined to be a huge hit. There was one problem, however. The PC Jr. was a flop. King's Quest was in danger of becoming one itself if something wasn't done. Ken mobilized his staff, and in a frenzy, King's Quest was recoded and re-released for the Apple II, the Amiga, the Tandy, the Atari ST, and for standard DOS machines. 
Roberta also took this time to flesh out the backstory of the game to the version that I covered earlier on. In the original PC Junior version, there wasn't really this whole backstory with treasures. It was just, you got dropped in the game, you talked to the king, he told you you needed to find treasures, and then you went off and did it. So with this quick retooling, King's Quest became the phenomenon that it was destined to be. So with this success, King's Quest II, Romancing the Throne, was begun. In this game, we find Graham gazing into his magic mirror, where he sees the face of a beautiful woman named Valenice. She is being held in an ivory tower by the evil witch Hagatha. Graham is transported to the world of Kalima to rescue her. Once there, he must find a way to save her from the tower. Once he does, after defeating Dracula, outsmarting Hagatha, and even death himself, he saves Valenice and marries her, giving Daventry the queen it deserves. As we said before, the code base from King's Quest 1 was generalized and modified into what became known as Sierra's Adventure Game Interpreter, or AGI, engine. King's Quest 2 was built on the same engine with the same 160 by 216 color graphics. King's Quest 2 kicks it up a notch in the music department with 14 musical tracks versus the first game's 7. The music in King's Quest 2 was arranged by Al Lowe, who in addition to his role as a game designer, is also a jazz musician. Roberta's goal in King's Quest 2 was to expand Graham's character, as opposed to breaking much new technological ground. She also got the chance to include elements she couldn't into the first game, like Dracula, King Neptune, and Little Red Riding Hood. King's Quest 2 also started the tradition of employing up-and-coming game designers on dev teams. Both Scott Murphy and Mark Crow, who would create the Space Quest series, worked on King's Quest 2. And of course, as I just mentioned, Al Lowe also did the music. So Sierra, these Sierra games tended to be a team effort. If people weren't working on other projects at the same time, if you didn't have a game that you were developing, that you were heading up, you got on the dev team, you did what you could do. If you were an artist, you did art. If you were a programmer, you programmed. If you were a musician, you played music. We don't care what your title is, you do the work. Also, unlike the first game, which told backstory in the manual, the sequel had an intro sequence showing Graham looking into the mirror and being sent on his quest. This intro sequence would also become a standard of both the series and the genre in general. King's Quest II released in 1985 to great reviews. Reviewers stated that if you enjoyed the first game, the second was even better. More puzzles, more cohesive storytelling, more of everything. So on to 1986 and King's Quest 3 to Air is Human. This third game in the series takes a turn away from the Kingdom of Daventry and its royal family to the land of Ludor, where a boy named Gwydion is being kept by the wicked wizard Mananan. According to the intro, for as long as he could remember, 17-year-old Gwydion has been held captive by Mananan as his servant cooking and cleaning for him in his home atop a large mountain in Ludor. From this vantage point, and with the help of a telescope, 
The seemingly all-knowing wizard watches the countryside, the shoreline, and the vast ocean to the east, and an endless desert to the west. Mananan takes a series of absences, and Gwydion seizes his chance to escape. He breaks into the wizard's laboratory and reads Mananan's book of spells, and then goes out to Ludor to collect ingredients for them. After solving many puzzles to obtain the spell ingredients, Gwydion turns Mananan into a cat and is free. His journey then takes him across the ocean to Daventry to rescue a beautiful princess from a dangerous three-headed dragon. It is eventually revealed that Gwydion is indeed the son of King Graham, kidnapped from Daventry by the magician at a young age, and the princess he has rescued is his sister, Rosella. So in addition to moving most of the action away from the king, quite a few other interesting gameplay features were implemented in King's Quest III. Firstly, I mentioned how the wizard would take a series of absences. Well, these absences are real-time. The menu bar of the game features a timer, which is constantly counting up from zero as of the time you start the game. If you pay close attention, each of Mananan's absences lasts exactly 15 minutes from the time he announces his departure. This gives you quite a bit of added pressure to get things done and be back inside Mananan's house without any contraband spell ingredients in your inventory. If you fail to get back and hide your booty, he will zap you and you gotta start over, or you gotta restart your game at the very least. In addition, Sierra decided to change up the copy protection method in this game. Instead of using disc-based copy protection, that is, requiring that the game disc be in the drive to play the game, they moved to manual-based copy protection. This was accomplished by having a series of magic spells written in the manual. To cast these spells, you had to gather all the ingredients and copy the text from the spell exactly, and I mean exactly, to be successful. This could be challenging for younger players since the text in the manual was quite small and was written in cursive. And I know being that, you know, you're on the timer and all that stuff, uh, you're kind of under pressure. And if you make one typo, the spell fails. And again, you have to restore your game. Finally, the game featured a unique mapping system. As Gwydion explored the world, a magic map he recovered from the wizard's house would slowly reveal sections of itself. Once a map square had been visited, Gwydion could fast travel between the areas by using the map. This was quite helpful in getting back to the wizard's house just in time for his arrival. So from a technical perspective, King's Quest III was about as good as the aging AGI engine could put out. Uh, it still ran 160 by 216 color graphics. However, this was the biggest game Sierra had produced to date, with over 100 screens versus the 80-ish of the original game. It was so large, in fact, that the game shipped on five five and a quarter floppies or three three and a half inch discs. Due to increased performance of the machines of the time, such as the original Macintosh, the IBM AT, and the Amiga, Williams felt that this was the first time she could really tell a real and complex story, as opposed to making a game that she referred to as a glorified treasure hunt, which is really what the previous two games were. Uh, Al Lowe was tapped as the lead programmer and his wife Margaret moved into his old role creating music. This was the last game he worked on before taking on his own series, Leisure Suit Larry. The game was well received, but initially fans were upset. Why weren't we playing the royal family? Of course, upon finishing the game, the secret was out. And also upon really kind of looking close at the, uh, at the, at the game's subtitle, you could also tell kind of where things were going. Uh, complaints quickly died down. One issue fans and reviewers both did have, though, was the magic map system. People felt it made the game too easy. Teleport functionality in later games would either be completely absent or very much toned down. 
So two more years passed to 1988, which brings us to King's Quest IV, The Perils of Rosella. This is an important one, but first, some story. King Graham has suffered a heart attack and is on the brink of death. The good fairy Janesta contacts Rosella through the magic mirror and offers her assistance. Janesta teleports Rosella to the land of Tamir, where she learns about a magical fruit that can heal her father. However, Janesta herself is in a weakened state because the evil fairy Lalotte stole the talisman that gives Janesta her power. If Rosella cannot return the talisman to Janesta, the good fairy will be unable to help her return to Daventry in time to save her father. So in addition to finding a way to obtain the magic fruit, Rosella must win Lalotte's trust. She is charged with performing three tasks for the evil fairy, after which she has the opportunity to recover the stolen talisman. Although Rosella's primary quest is to retrieve the magic fruit needed to save King Graham, it is possible to return to Daventry without completing this task. However, this leads to a tragic alternate ending to the game. Winning the game will not resolve all the storylines, though. Such will be the goal in the sequels. So the gameplay in King's Quest IV is similar to others insofar as Rosella has to complete the quest in the manner we have in the previous games. Uh, there are some notable differences, however. Firstly, and most obviously, is Rosella herself. While I can't be 100% certain, the research I've done seems to imply that this is the first computer game to feature a female protagonist. This was indeed a very bold move in those early days of PC gaming. This stood a very good chance of alienating the mainly male fanbase of the series. Secondly, rumors before the game released of Graham dying upset fans. Uh, you know, their king and their hero that they've loved through these three games so far could not die. Thirdly, the time-based concept of the previous game was expanded upon. Where King's Quest III had these timed events that ran off of a visible timer, King's Quest IV would take place over a real-time 24-hour clock. Wander aimlessly for too long and day turns to night. Certain actions can happen only during the day and others only at night. If you miss your chance, there's only one conversion at 9pm from day to night. If you miss that and you haven't done stuff that needs to be done during the day, you have lost the game. Fourthly, the game has alternate endings. As I said in the quick description of the story, uh, you know, this was a new development for Sierra Adventures. Rosella had two goals. There's two main goals to the quest, whereas before there was only ever one. You have to get the talisman and get the fruit to save your father. You could finish the game by getting the talisman, but not the fruit. But this resulted in Rosella going home when, and Graham dying anyways. Obviously not the resolution we want. Finally, where the original King's Quest created the AGI game engine, King's Quest IV was the first game put out under Sierra's next generation Sierra Creative Interpreter, or SCI, engine. This engine allowed for stunning, at the time, 320 by 216 color graphics, and more importantly, it allowed support for MIDI music and sound effects. Sierra's artists took great advantage of this by creating wonderful storybook vistas and surprisingly beautiful and enchanting music, which you've been hearing under my blathering. William Goldstein was hired to compose the music. Goldstein had scored over 50 TV, music, and video game projects over his career and did an amazing job given the technological limits of the time. In fact, King's Quest IV was the first commercially available video game to support newly available PC sound cards. It also supported mouse control for moving your character around the screen, though this only came in handy on very few instances. The text parser was vastly improved and remained an integral part of the game's interface, 
though after this, its days were sorta numbered. The game reviewed very well despite some performance issues and some uneven puzzle difficulty. Uh, the production was considered by many to be cinematic in quality. This is also one of the only Sierra games to be released in two versions. Uh, since the SCI engine was so much more demanding than the older AGI system, an AGI version of King's Quest IV was also created to run on older hardware. Uh, it was never available in store, however, it was only available via mail order direct from Sierra. Nineteen ninety brings us to King's Quest V. Absence makes the heart grow yonder. The only King's Quest game whose events are directly triggered by events in a previous game. In the introduction to the game, a view of Castle Daventry is shown, when suddenly a mysterious cloaked figure appears. He enchants the castle, causing a whirlwind to appear, which soon engulfs the castle and lifts it out of sight. Because he's out walking when this happens, King Graham is the only member of the royal family to be left behind. He returns to the castle to find it has disappeared, and is soon confronted by a talking owl named Cedric. Cedric witnessed the cloaked figure's attack and tells Graham that it was a powerful, evil wizard named Mordak who stole the castle. Cedric then brings Graham to the land of Serenia, where his master Crispin resides. Crispin is also a wizard, but he's a good one. Uh, he gives Graham some advice, his old wand, and a piece of white snake, which allows Graham to speak with animals. Graham then starts on his journey. Later, Graham learns that Mordak is the brother of the evil wizard Mananan, who Graham's son, Prince Alexander, turned into a cat in King's Quest III to heir as human. Mordak has imprisoned the castle and the royal family of Daventry out of revenge, and threatens to feed the royal family to Mananan, the cat, unless Prince Alexander agrees to restore him to his true form. King Graham travels through the land of Serenia, gathering helpful items and information, and eventually makes his way to Mordak's island to save his family from their impending doom. So King's Quest V brings us into the modern Sierra adventure era with the SCI-1 engine. It introduced beautiful VGA graphics at 320 by 200 at 256 colors. In addition, it did away with the text parser for Sierra's now well-known set of action icons. Though some gamers complained, and those same ones still do to this day, that this made the games much too easy, most people think the point-and-click interface was a revolution in adventure gaming. Music for this game was done by Mark Siebert and our friend Ken Allen, who we've previously chatted about quite a bit. Uh, this is the first King's Quest game that I experienced firsthand, and I was always very impressed by it. It was huge, beautiful, and well done. King's Quest V was the first Sierra game that cost the studio over a million dollars to produce. One year later, in 1991, a CD-ROM version of the game was released. 
It increased the resolution to 640 by 480 at 256 colors and added a voice track to replace the character speech text. Voices were provided by Sierra staff with writer and designer Josh Mandel, who's currently involved with that Larry remake project that I've been chatting about, uh, voicing King Graham. This was the first Sierra game to be released in a multimedia format. The voice acting is definitely not professional level, but in general, despite some complaints, gamers enjoyed not having to read. King's Quest VI, Air Today, Gone Tomorrow, released in 1992. This game was a collaboration between Roberta Williams and Jane Jensen, who would go on to create Gabriel Knight right after this game. King's Quest VI stars Prince Alexander, who is lovesick over Cosima, the beautiful princess of the land of the Green Isles, introduced at the end of King's Quest V. Alexander soon loses contact with Cosima, and no one in Daventry seems to know where the land of the Green Isles can be found. While moping in the throne room of his castle, Alex hears Cosima calling his name through the magic mirror. Looking through it, he has a burst of inspiration. He could find his way to her kingdom by navigating using the stars. Alex immediately embarks, finds his ship thrashed about the sea in the midst of a storm, and conveniently washes ashore on the Isle of the Crown, which is part of the land of the Green Isles. This was the largest King's Quest yet, with the story spanning multiple islands, multiple non-linear paths to completion, and a series of alternate endings depending on your actions in the game. This was also the last Sierra adventure game to be released on floppies. It came on a set of 12 high-density three-and-a-half-inch discs. The CD-ROM version had higher-res portraits and, of course, voice work. Learning from the negative reviews of King's Quest V's voice acting, professional actors were hired. Alexander was voiced by Robbie Benson, the voice of the Beast from Disney's Beauty and the Beast. This game was amazing looking. Early motion capture was used to animate the characters and a full CD audio song called Girl on the Tower, which uh, was made specifically for the game, was included on some CD-ROM versions to play over the end credits. King's Quest VI was the best King's Quest released to date and the first CD-ROM game I personally ever purchased. This brings us up to 1994 and King's Quest VII, The Princeless Bride. As the game opens, 
Queen Valenice is lecturing her daughter, Princess Rosella, about the importance of marriage. Rosella is somewhat rebellious and dreams of adventure rather than marriage. In the magic mirror, she catches a glimpse of a magical seahorse-like creature momentarily jumping out and into a pond, leaving behind an image of a castle in clouds. And Rosella dives right in. Valenice follows. They find themselves caught inside a gigantic magical whirlpool-like vortex. Rosella, who is being sucked down, and Valenice desperately try to reach each other, but suddenly a troll-like arm sticks in from the side of the whirlpool, grabs Rosella, and snatches her away. Valenice is left staring helplessly in horror as the scene ends. Valenice lands in a desert in the land of Eldritch, where Rosella finds herself transformed into a troll and engaged to be married to the King of the Trolls. As the other two characters attempt to find each other, they discover that all of Eldritch is in danger. The evil sorceress Malicia has attacked or imprisoned the leaders of the different kingdoms of Eldritch and plots to destroy the land. Now, the graphics in King's Quest VII are incredible. The game looks like a Disney cartoon. Uh, sadly, other aspects of the game were a bit of a letdown. When compared to the groundbreaking nature of its predecessor, the gameplay was quite linear, split into six chapters. It used only a single mouse pointer. That is no separate action icons. It was kind of you hover around the screen, find a hotspot, click on it, and something happens. Uh, though the game reviewed fairly well and still sold relatively well, it lacked the complexity and kind of the magic of the previous games. The simplified interface wasn't well received, and critics said the game was more like watching a cartoon than actually playing a game. Finally, this brings us to 1998 and King's Quest Mask of Eternity, the last official game in the series. So the story begins in Castle Daventry with King Graham and his minister talking about the everyday affairs of running the country when the magic mirror activates in front of them and shows them a bad omen. They witness Lucrito, the Archon of the Realm of the Sun, destroy the Mask of Eternity and releasing a wave of energy. The mirror goes on to show the kingdom's only hope, a lowly peasant and knight, Connor of Daventry, from a nearby village. He is shown chatting with his neighbor Sarah, when a storm arises and a piece of the mask falls at his feet. He picks it up and turns around to find Sarah has been turned into stone. The unleashed magic energy turned all mortals in the world to stone, including King Graham. With that, the mirror ends its vision. Early on in the game, a half-stone wizard Connor encounters tells him about the Mask of Eternity, Connor's destiny, and conjures for him a magic map that shows all explored areas and allows Connor to teleport between lands once the teleportation sites in each land have been discovered. With knowledge of his quest, Connor makes his way to Castle Daventry to check on his liege and the royal family. Finding Graham and the rest of the inhabitants in the castle turned to stone, he vows that he would save King Graham and Queen Valenice, their family, and the rest of the inhabitants of Daventry, or die trying. The game ends with Connor rising to the top of the Realm of the Sun with the restored mask. A beam of blue light shines on the mask, seeming to restore its power, and it sends out a wave of energy that restores everything, including the Kingdom of Daventry, back to life. Sarah is restored. King Graham, newly restored, looks on proudly at his hero in the magic mirror. The game ends with the Archons being released from their stone prisons and joining Connor, who triumphantly lifts his sword into the air. 
This was the first King's Quest game to take place in 3D, using Dynamics' 3Space engine, which was used in their flight sim games. It also introduced combat and RPG elements to the world, so it was kind of a cross between King's Quest and, uh, and Hero Quest or Quest for Glory or whatever you want to call it. Uh, there was some controversy over some of the darker themes in the game to the point where Sierra Management appointed a group of managers to work above Roberta Williams. At one point, that group of managers and Roberta were both working on two parallel versions of the game, Roberta's dark, gritty version and a cleaner, kind of more sanitized, company-friendly version. Uh, this, coupled with engine delays on the uh, the new 3Space engine, which was to be used in Red Baron 2, they were going to use it in this game as well, You know that caused a lot of delays, and uh, the game's final release ended up being not exactly what, uh, what Roberta wanted. Uh, for a time, she actually considered removing her name from the product entirely. She was that upset about the whole thing. Regardless, Mask of Eternity released two mixed yet positive reviews. At, at the very least, the reviews were better than King's Quest VII. And uh, it still sold quite well and won quite a few awards despite all these uh, weird political issues that, uh, that it went through. You are so that's where we're at with King's Quest. Despite a few minor humps, almost all the games were viewed as successes. I was under the impression that that's where we left it. But of course, I was wrong. The future does hold something for King's Quest. Now, I heard an interview with Ken and Roberta Williams months ago on the Guys from Andromeda podcast, and they are both quite happy in their retirement. They have a boat, they sail around the world together, and they're basically living their dream. So both Ken and Roberta have no intention of returning to the games industry. They did their time, and now they're enjoying their lives. However... It seems that back in 2011, Telltale Games entered an agreement with Activision to acquire the rights to the series, and a new King's Quest game is actually under development and slated for release this year in 2013. They aren't revealing much about it, aside from the fact that it will feature the royal family, and while Roberta said she didn't want to be involved directly, she has offered guidance on how to proceed. As any other news comes out about this, I will of course let you all know. The Treks in Sci-Fi Podcast. Stand by to receive our transmission. Sci-Fi Entertainment News and Commentary. I am Locutus of Borg. Star Trek Episode Analysis. Captain of the USS Enterprise. Pokey religions and ancient weapons. Collectibles, toy, and prop reviews. I am to misbehave. The weekly Treks in Sci-Fi podcast with your host Rico at treksinsci-fi.com. So where can you get your hands on King's Quest today? Well, this one's... Also easy, all eight games are available on GOG.com in three sets. First one's one, two, and three. The second's four, five, and six. And the third is seven and eight. They're available for $9.99 each set. They run flawlessly on my newly upgraded Windows 8 machine. And uh, with a few minor config tweaks, they even grab my MT32 and my SC55 for MIDI. 
Now, you know, it'd be really awesome, I think, if GOG allowed you to choose your own settings. But frankly, I guess most people don't have MIDI tone generators sitting under their desks. Uh, you know, I just usually install their versions and add them to my own DOSBox install. And, uh, and I make minor adjustments to the resource.cfg files that I need to, to, get, uh, to get it to, to pay attention to my MIDI devices. So I mentioned we'd save a couple of emails for the end of the show. And uh, well, we're not quite at the end of the show, but now's the time we're going to pay attention to the rest of the emails. Uh, these are the ones that are chatting all about King's Quest. Firstly, Chris writes, Straight off, thanks for taking the time to make this podcast. I only recently found it, but I love hearing people talk about games I've really loved in the past. Growing up in the late 80s, my dad worked for a medium-sized company, which had plenty of game enthusiasts in its ranks. They had a computer at the office called the Sheep Dip, which people could dump software and games on for others to copy and take home. Well, obviously not legitimate. At the time as a child, I didn't even care or even think about it. I just loved it when my dad came home with a new game. The three standout games he brought home were Space Quest 1, Police Quest 1, and finally, King's Quest 3. All were the EGA and typed command controlled versions. King's Quest 3 was the one we spent the most time playing, even though, to start, I didn't really know what was going on. I have to admit, for a couple of weeks, I thought your master was in fact a lizard and not a wizard. I blame this on, uh, on one, the crude graphics, and two, not really paying attention to my dad and the provided text. Finding new things for the first time in King's Quest 3 is what made it special to me, my brother, and my sister. The first time we moved the book in the study to reveal the lever which opened the basement... The first time we tripped over the cat and fell down to the basement. The first time we drank the bottle of nightshade juice and died. The first time we discovered the bandit's hideout. All of it felt like such an accomplishment. Knowing that I had to be back at the house by the 30-minute mark made each adventure all the more exciting. I could go on about everything in this game, but I am waffling on a bit as it is. I will close by saying, without a shadow of a doubt, the early quest games are responsible for my ability to type relatively fast today. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Chris. Uh... You know, you're fully right, and and I kind of feel, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get all like in my day, burr, 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 uh, a lot of games today kind of lack that sense of accomplishment. I think the reason that these games provided that so well is because they were so damned hard. Like these games were frustratingly hard, especially at the time you didn't have the internet anything like that there was a hint line that cost you money to call there was a hint book that cost money and i was like a 10 year old kid i didn't have money to call hint lines or buy hint books you know sometimes i convinced my mom to buy me a hint book and i think they were like 20 bucks like they were pretty expensive for what they were but um you know the fact that you had to sit there and i know we talked about this back on the space quest episode but you'd sit there for hours and you'd just try different things and combining things and things that didn't make sense and you weren't quite sure why you were doing it, but you did it anyways. And then you figured out something, a door opened or, you know, you were able to give an item to a person and they gave you something in return. And that was such a feeling of accomplishment because you spent so much time and so much brain power and just trying to figure out the one thing to do, the one thing to type into the parser. It's it's just amazing. I know there are games like that today. That's That's... For certain, maybe, you know, these types of adventure games have turned more into, let's say, modern combat RPGs or something like that. Like, you know, if you're playing Skyrim and, and something happens. But there, it's not a, it's not even so much that playing something like Skyrim or, you know, Fallout 3 or, or, or something like that, playing those, it's not so much that 
you can't figure something out. It's just that there's so much content. Frankly, these games don't have that much content. It's just figuring out what to do is so difficult. And yeah, it's just, it, it, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And, you know, the fact that this game puts time constraints on you, King's Quest Three, and, and all that, it makes it difficult. It makes it nerve-wracking. It's just the things they could do with such small amounts of technology that they had and, you know, 16 colors and low resolution and typed interface and all that was just incredible. It's mind-blowing today if you look back and think about it that, you know, this is the stuff that they could do with, with the tools that they had at that time. Just incredible. Thank you so much for that. Sorry I went off on a little rant there. So finally, for the last email of the show, we got an email from Tina Maria, and she writes, Hi, Joe. First of all, I love your podcast. I love how you have it all broken down into segments. I love your theme song, too. Some of your games I've heard of and others I'm getting an education. I love listening to Gabriel Knight and Alone in the Dark. I love games that you have to figure out and are a little creepy. I'm a big Resident Evil and Silent Hill fans. My dad used to have an old Tandy along with other computers along the way. I used to watch him play all kinds of games when he would let me. I used to watch my dad play Heroes Quest. Will you be covering that series as well? I loved your cast on Space Quest. I've only played bits and pieces here and there. Love the humor. As I got older, I got into playing games like King's Quest. My first experience was King's Quest 3. I don't really remember the computer I used, but I remember having to save onto floppy disk, and uh, we didn't have a color monitor, so everything was in orange and black. I must have saved a thousand times. I remember having to save whenever I had to go down that stupid mountain. I never could see around the huge boulder, and I must have fallen to my doom a million times. The cat was a pain in the butt, too. If I ever needed to make my potions, I would be on the stair. he would be on the stairs trying to trip me up. Doing the chores was funny, like emptying the chamber pot. Sometimes I would play with the speed and watch my character sweep the kitchen really fast. I really had to rack my brain, coming up with all the correct phrases to say, and it helped me with my spelling. Sometimes, if I was frustrated, I would start typing in bad words and it would get mad at me or it wouldn't know what I meant, so I had to get creative sometimes. <laughs> there was one where I typed in, kiss barmaid, that was funny. Uh, when doing the spells, I had a hard time reading the manual because I couldn't read the script or cursive very well. I had an older friend help me type in the spells. Of course, if I typed them in wrong or missed something, my character would look like half a cat or a fly or something else. So, of course, saving occurred before the spell. I used to hide out in the hall way until it was all typed in. I would get really nervous and anxious. I played until I finished the game. I was really excited when I beat the game. A few years ago, I found the King's Quest series again and noticed they had changed the graphics and made it more point and click. I love seeing the games in color. Playing the games again, I was reminded of Tom Hanks in Big, where he goes back to play the game that was giving him a hard time as a child. I don't know if it was a real game or not, but it looks like a game that you would cover on your podcast. I can't wait to hear your take on this wonderful series. Your podcast is wonderful to listen to, especially with all the driving I do between my jobs and home. All the best. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, and you know, it's, it's like I just said, there's such a sense of accomplishment. And I think I said it earlier in the show too. Uh, you know, I remember very specifically with Police Quest, there was this one point where, and I'm sure I'll talk about this when I do inevitably cover Police Quest, that uh, you had to go in your locker and, and take your, your clothes out of the locker and put them on. And for some reason, no matter what, I guess it was, you know, I, I must have been eight or nine or 10 or something like that. And for the life of me, despite my mom will be upset with me because she's an English teacher. And despite my best efforts, I could not spell the word clothes. So I always, I had to find like a synonym for the word clothes. So I always ended up uh, take clothing and for some reason that always worked. And I don't know why I could spell clothing, but I couldn't spell clothes. Or maybe the game didn't understand the word clothes. I don't know. But 
you know, it forced me to think, well, okay, I wanted, to, I wanted to take the clothes and I wanted to put them on. So what I'm typing isn't working. What's another way to say clothes? Oh, clothing. Okay, well, I'll say take clothing. Hey, it worked. Okay. So, you know, it's just, it, it, it teaches you, especially as a kid, you know, it taught you how to type, how to describe things, how to express yourself in words. And yeah, that's just an amazing thing. I, I know, frankly, you know, I, I like the point and click interface much more than, uh, than the parser interface. I found the parser interface somewhat clunky, but it definitely did have its advantages as a younger person with regard to, you know, learn, teaching you how to spell, teaching you how to type and all that kind of thing. And yeah, I did forget to mention, uh, th- there was a King's Quest one remake in, uh, in VGA, just like they remade Space Quest one in, uh, in VGA version and, and, and all that. So, um, it's not included on the GOG releases. I'm sure you can find it very easily if you do want to play it. Um, you know, updated graphics, MIDI music, blah, 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 blah. And further to uh, covering Quest for Glory. Yeah, you know, I, I, I certainly will. I try and spread out these, uh, these Sierra series since they're all very well known. A lot of people play them and uh, there's a lot of games in them. I, I, can't, I know there's quite a few Quest for Glory games as well. Uh, I've heard some interviews with Laurie and Corey Cole, the creators of that, when they were coming out with their uh, their Hero Academy or Hero Quest, whatever the Kickstarter that I talked about previously that they're in charge of, where they told some stories about uh, developing Quest for Glory. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to cover that. Maybe not in the next couple of weeks, that's for sure, the next few episodes, because I don't want to do these big series all at once. But uh, yes, it is most definitely on the list. Thank you very much again for your email. Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. So, with those memories and opinions in mind, I guess it's time for my verdict. Does King's Quest hold up today? Well, as a series that led the evolution of the gaming industry for at least 15 years, I'll say it certainly does. Every game I thought would not hold up did hold up in its own way. Without nostalgia, I would likely say that you'd probably want to start off at the fourth or even the fifth game and just read up on some backstory from the first three. You know, since those first three well-groundbreaking for their time are, you know, actually still quite rudimentary. The voice acting in King's Quest V is certainly a bit lacking, but uh, it does make for some laughs. King's Quest VI, in my opinion, is still a masterpiece. I'm certain anyone who likes a good story will love that particular game. If you are at all interested in gaming history, and if you're listening to this show, you probably are, this series demands to be experienced. From the frustrating puzzles and deaths of the first two, to the time-based gameplay of the third, the amazing music of the fourth, the beautiful graphics of the fifth, the amazing storytelling and overall presentation of the sixth, to the cartoony graphics and early 3D of the last two, this series defined adventure gaming and gaming in general for a long time. You should at the very least do a bit of reading, watch some videos, and give these games a whirl.
So that is that. Thank you to everyone who sent stuff in this week. I was very happy with all the response. Please keep those emails and voicemails coming. Next time around, I'm going to hit my first puzzle game series, one I enjoyed quite a bit in the past. Another Sierra slash Dynamics uh, joint, I guess we can call it, The Incredible Machine. As usual, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com as always. Check out the show notes for this show at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. We tend to have a lot of good times over there. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher Radio. Leave me some reviews. I love them. The more the better. And uh, that's that. Thank you again for hanging out with me and we will see you next time for The Incredible Machine here in the Upper Memory Block. Control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join the unity.